Welcome, everyone. I'm Candace DiMatteis, Vice President of Policy and Advocacy for the Partnership to Fight Infectious Disease, and I'm happy to welcome you to our podcast, Infectious Conversations. Through Infectious Conversations, we're having discussions with healthcare professionals, policy, and other experts to get a grip on how to squash superbugs. Our goal is to better understand the threat of antibiotic and other antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, the threats that they pose and the need to address them now. We also want to better understand how we can build on lessons that we've learned throughout the COVID-19 pandemic and other healthcare experiences to change the course toward improving health outcomes for everyone. Today, our segment features a discussion with Dr. Aaron Duffy, the Chief of Research and Development at Carbex. Aaron is an expert in drug discovery and problem solving in the antibiotic arena. Most of her professional growth was with Melinta Therapeutics, founded as Ribex Pharmaceuticals, where over 17 years, she became Executive Vice President, Chief Scientific Officer, and R&D Site Head. Her entry into the pharmaceutical sector began with Pfizer Central Research. Erin's formal training was at Yale University, where she completed a PhD in Physical Organic Chemistry and an HHMI postdoctoral fellowship in Computational Structural Biology. Ooh, nightmares from organic chemistry are coming back. So I'm so so excited that we have smart people like you who can uh, not only uh, manage the entry level, but go on to a PhD. We're so thrilled at PFID to have Carbex as an active supporter and task force partner. Carbex is a global nonprofit partnership that supports companies developing antibiotics, vaccines, diagnostics, and non-traditional products to address resistant bacterial infections and sepsis. Today, we're so thrilled to talk to Erin about the Carbex research portfolio and why it is critical to invest in diverse products and diagnostics that really take a comprehensive approach to help prevent, diagnose, and treat sepsis. Erin, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Happy to be here. Well, as I mentioned, we're thrilled to have you and your expertise will be so invaluable. So let's talk a little bit more about Carbex. And can you tell us a little bit more about what you do at Carbex specifically? Um, sure. So as you said, you know, we are basically the implementing partner of three international governments and two foundations um, to not only give uh, financial support, but probably even more importantly, scientific and business support to uh, the groups who are advancing these new potential treatments, prevention, and, and diagnostics for bacterial infections. Uh, my role uh, as the head of R&D at, at Carbex, we don't do any research internally, um, sometimes much to our chagrin, um, but uh, I have a team of, of experienced colleagues in all three pillars um, and our goal is to shepherd these programs. We build support teams around them um, that bring expertise uh, that they may lack. Uh, I should have said most of our companies are actually really small companies that we support, often maybe five to 10 FTEs at most. And typically they are expert at the foundational technologies, which are really interesting and varied. But not always are they expert at how to take those ideas and translate them into something that will be products. And so what we do is we identify those gaps, 
We bring in subject matter experts who then sit with these teams on a monthly and a quarterly basis and really help them think through problems and advance uh, you know, through the development stages. So if a company, is it, do they come to you and say, hey, we need help with um, you know, finding uh, funding or we're in, encountering this hurdle in the research process? I'm just curious, did they come mm-hmm. to you to, with the problem identified or is it kind of a two-way street where you also will look and say, how are you dealing with this? And maybe they're like, oh, we didn't know we have to deal with that. What would you suggest? How does that work? Yeah, so I, sh- I should have said we, um, so our funding is all through open funding calls. So it's not a rolling basis. Um, but, you know, we've, let's see, over the course of time here, Carbex was begun in 2016 and actually commenced the first funding call in September of that year. Um, and so through, uh, you know, the years now, we have had eight distinct and unique funding calls um, through which 92 companies out of over a thousand expressions of interest, but 92 companies uh, or institutes uh, in some cases have have come into the portfolio and been funded by us. And so for those programs in portfolio, we do assemble these company support teams right off the bat. Um, And that's a conversation. It's, you know, look, we think that these are gaps in your program. Um, what do you think? You know, what do you need? And, and we try to come to some middle ground so that we're not overbearing. It is their projects, um, but we're giving the support where needed. Uh, so that's sort of one aspect. The other aspect um, that is both for portfolio, but then also for the greater ecosystem, you know, researchers who may not be in portfolio, is that my team uh, has begun identifying what we call common challenges you know, that not one company or product developer is facing, but many. And so then we will design a unit of work and, and work with external researchers to get it done so that then we can hopefully, in, in the ideal sense, um, you know, unblock a path for, you know, many companies that they've been struggling with and will publish these results, et cetera. So that's another way that we help is by, again, identifying problems more on a portfolio level and then trying to Uh, do something rapidly that many of them can benefit from. So talk a little bit, if you don't mind, about about why why is something like Carbex needed? Obviously, Mm -hmm. you bring a lot of value, but I'm curious about what was the gap that led to Carbex being founded? And you talked about different government and private um, foundation funding as well. So I'm really curious about what was that gap? Yeah, so, um, you know, when when you introduced me, um, you know, I, I spent the, the most of my career in a little company, um, you know, begun as Rivex Pharmaceuticals and then um, becoming Melinda Therapeutics. And we were a pure play antibiotic discovery company from day one with a pretty neat technology that had come out of Yale. Um, and the company was begun in 2001. And that was the year that, um, you know, a new antibiotic called Zyvox, uh, trade name Zyvox, linazolid was launched. And it was the first new antibiotic uh, in many, many years. Uh, And there was a lot of excitement around it. And it had both IV and oral forms and things, you know, looked really great. And and in fact, its sales were, you know, in the billion dollar range um, or so after a few years of launch. So it looked like a great time to get into antibiotics. We had this neat technology that was going to un- unlock new ways of, of bringing antibiotics, et cetera. Um, 
But a lot of the big companies started getting out of antibiotics and it was a mathematics issue really in terms of um, how much money you're putting in to research. Not that it's different in antibiotics to any other therapeutic area. There's still you know, the time to do the discovery and then the clinical trials and the launch. So that part isn't different. It's what happens on the back end. Um, and, and, you know, if you think about it for a minute, if you take an antibiotic, you're typically taking it for five to 14 days at the most, not everybody has an infection at the same time. So you don't have chronic disease and not everybody's taking it. Um, and so, you know, it's really a volume problem in terms of the amount of money that you can make. So companies, big companies did the analysis and said, you know, this isn't, this isn't an area where, you know, we should be trying to create value for our shareholders. So then it was left to all the little companies um, to do this work. And, you know, there were some other environmental issues that happened. There was a failure of a drug in the sort of mid 2000s, an antibiotic um, that really depressed the regulatory environment and made it challenging for about four years to really progress new antibiotics through clinical trials and onto the market. Uh, so that was tough. You're a little company, it's tough to raise money anyway. Now you've got a time delay to really advancing your products. And so as many of these companies finally did achieve that goal, including ours, we uh, received FDA approval in 2017 for our first antibiotic. Um, and it launched in January of 18, exactly three quarters later, uh, we made the decision to shut the antibiotic research and development. And I think um, not many months after that, the company filed for bankruptcy bankruptcy protection. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, and and so we weren't the only company. But still ultimate financial, financially not successful. Exactly. And we weren't the only ones. You know, there was another high profile bankruptcy, a company called Kedge and similar story after their first launch. And then a few other companies didn't go bankrupt, but they were sold um, or broken up for assets for, you know, frankly, not very much money. Um, so anyway, so you've got this problem. Um, but the U.S. government uh, really was a leader here uh, through the ASPR and, and, you know, BARDA. We now know BARDA because of, um, you know, COVID and, and, you know, all that they've done there. Um, you know, but BARDA really has two remits. One is to protect, um, you know, Americans um, and, and, you know, really provide for their health. Um, and the other, of course, is, um, you know, uh, protecting against bio threats. Um, and many of your big bio threats are bacterial pathogens. And, and so um, they had an interest in uh, supporting companies who had a commercial indication. So, you know, urinary tract infections, lung infections, whatever, um, if they could show activity against potential biowarfare pathogens. So then once that drug was launched, they could bring it into the national stockpile. And so what they were seeing was this decline in innovation, largely because a lot of companies were out and small companies were struggling. And so they said, well, we really need to do something about this. It's a matter of national security that we have a good stockpile. Uh, and so they created this request for proposals um, and you know, we, we applied for it and Boston University applied for it. Um, and then, you know, through um, the PI of Carvex, Kevin Alderson, partnering with BARDA, they encouraged the Wellcome Trust to come in. So those were the first two founder, uh, you know, two funders. 
Uh, and then subsequently, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the UK government and the German government all joined uh, for the same reason, you know, recognizing that, you know, it's really a matter of national security, if you think about it. Well, and we certainly learned what infectious pathogens can do and um, right. and certainly doesn't discriminate um, uh, with COVID-19. Absolutely. I want to turn and talk a little bit about one serious problem that we have, um, and that's sepsis. As you know, September is Sepsis Awareness Month, um, and there's a lot of, there's a big gap in what exactly is sepsis, um, Mm -hmm. and so the Awareness Month is so important. What causes it, how it can be avoided, and, and the fallout if it's not. I mean, it's, it can be quite fatal, as you know. So, and I understand that at Carbex, sepsis is an important focus of your Mm -hmm. research. So can you talk a little bit about why that's such an important focus and what Carbex is doing around sepsis? Sure. So, um, you know, from just a a, a unmet medical need perspective, I'm I'm sure you saw um, in, I think it was late January of this year in the Lancet, uh, there was a, a, a really a, a landmark uh, paper that's sort of commonly known as the Graham paper, um, which revealed results from a 2019 study of infections worldwide um, and, you know, what the mortality and morbidity was and the association with antimicrobial resistance, which is, you know, the challenge here. I mean, you know, bacteria have evolved for the history of time, and as they do, they often render products that had been effective, ineffective, which is why we always need new antibiotic products. People know that now, I think, because we talk about COVID variants, it's kind of the same thing. Um, Anyway, um, so in that grant paper, one of the things among the many things they highlighted were the the syndromes um, or the, you know, indications, uh, things that people present with, disease states, um, that are, have the highest mortality that's either directly attributable to antimicrobial resistance or associated therewith. And the first category, you know, with the highest mortality um, was lower respiratory tract infections. So hospital associated bacterial pneumonia, ventilator associated bacterial pneumonia, that sort of thing. But the second was bloodstream infections, which is really what we're talking about here with sepsis. So, you know, you have bloodstream infections. This is when a bacteria gets into the bloodstream, whether it, um, you know, comes from a a leaky gut and and bacteria, you know, then gets into the bloodstream or whether there's a primary infection site like lung and again, it gets into the blood. And then once that happens, things progress pretty rapidly to a syndrome that ends up being much more, you know, uh, host directed, meaning the, the body has cytokine storm starts trying to fight this infection and um, things go downhill pretty quickly. Can you talk a little bit, that study that you're talking about was was so mm-hmm. important and what a, um, you know, really, again, highlighted the impact that antimicrobial resistance is having now. And you talked about um, uh, bloodstream infections or sepsis. Mm-hmm. But, um, and as I understand it, Carbex's portfolio is not just on the treatment mm-hmm. side, but also on the diagnostic side. Um, and that sepsis can be a challenge to diagnose because there are multiple symptoms presenting in different people differently. So how is that 
um, what are some innovations around sepsis mm-hmm. on the diagnostic side? Maybe that that Carvex is following or helping to progress through the pipeline. Sure. So I should have said, you know, and you know, I, we aim in all the syndromes where possible to have uh, treatments, um, preventatives. Of course, you know, the best infection is one you never have. Um, so prevention, of course, is very important, and then diagnosis. And again, I think, you know if we would have had this conversation in even, you know, late 2019, you know, most people might have not been able to resonate with this, but with COVID, you know, far before we had the vaccines, you know, we had things that were being uh, explored for treatments. And of course, how how important was diagnosis? Do I have it? Do I not have it? Can I go out? Can I not go out? So, you know, all all very important. Um, Anyway, so, so in, in the area of sepsis uh, or bloodstream infections, um, you know, we do have programs in all three pillars, and, and I'll mention all of them, but starting with diagnostics, you know, they're, they're really, um, you know, how you, how you diagnose an infection in the blood, um, you know, is obviously take a blood sample, um, and then you have to uh, not only look for, is it bacterial? Okay, so that's one thing, is, is the infection bacterial versus viral, for instance, uh, and then what is the bacterial species and we call that bacterial identification. So is it Staph aureus or MRSA? Is it, um, you know, E. coli or, you know, any of the other big pathogens? So you want to know that. And then the third part is you want to understand uh, what treatments it will be susceptible to. And so that's called antibiotic susceptibility testing. Um, and so all of this is important um, but a key thing is the time to results, right? Because as I said, you know, sepsis progresses really quickly. And so you need to be able to understand this and then provide a suggestion for treatment in a time frame, you know, that's meaningful. Uh, and so the innovations are sort of threefold, I would say, um, that we're supporting. The first is, um, you know, there are two ways to, to, to do the analysis of blood. One is what they call post-culture. So, you know, you get the blood and you, you figure out what the bacteria are and then off you go. Um, the other is direct from whole blood. And so you can imagine direct from whole blood, it's like direct mail or whatever, that's faster. Um, that's challenging. You know, there's a lot of technical hurdles with how to process the samples well and then how to be able to, you know, have good sensitivity and specificity um, many of our programs um, in, in um, bloodstream infections do, in fact, emphasize direct from whole blood. And, and two of the products that were early in our portfolio, um, one from T2 Biosystems uh, and, and one from Specific Diagnostics, are both direct from whole blood. And they're actually marketed in Europe and they're preparing for um, you know, their FDA uh, approvals. So there's that. The second thing that those products do is that in addition to the bacterial identification, they also um, highlight if prominent resistance genes, so you can think about this like the variants for a minute, whether it's BA4 or BA5 or whatever we're up to now, numbers. Um, And similarly with with resistant genes, it can be things like carbapenemases, extended beta-lactamases, fluoroquinolone resistant markers. and so they look for those. That's not the same as automated susceptibility testing. It'll say there are these resistance genes, so maybe don't use products from that class. But what it doesn't say, 
of all of the antibiotics and types of antibiotics that are available, um, you know, in, in theory, who can cover the bacteria associated with sepsis, you know, which ones are, is this, you know, bacteria actually susceptible to. Um, so that's the other innovation that we're supporting. And then the third one is all about that turnaround time, how to get it, um, you know, in the ideal case, definitely less than eight hours and, and even less than that, recognizing that you're never going to impact the first antibiotic they give because they're just going to, you know, give you something broad spectrum just to try to get under control. But then how do we manage treatment in a, um, you know, in, in the most responsible way? And the sooner you can know this result, the more you can impact that decision. That, that makes a lot of sense, but it sounds like a lot of complexity and things working together to get that window narrowed and, and get the right, right treatment for the patient at the, in, within that golden time frame, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's, I have to say, I'm not a diagnostics expert by any means. And if my diagnostics colleagues are listening, they're probably like cringing at everything I'm saying here. But, you know, the interesting thing about diagnostics, you know, all, all these areas have, you know, their complexities, but with diagnostics, you have the chemistry, right, which is the, how do I, you know, determine what bacteria are there and, and you know, what, how am I doing that? Um, but then the other is what is the, either the box or the cartridge or whatever it is um, that, you know, you put that assay on to do the work. Um, and, you know, these require fundamentally different types of people. You know, you have your biology and chemistry types over here and you have your engineers over here. Um, but both of these pieces have to come together in order to make a product that's usable at appropriate levels of the healthcare system. You know, think about it in COVID, at the very beginning of COVID, actually some of our product developers got involved in this. They had assays that they could switch to, you know, maybe, you know, detecting COVID. This stuff was done on a bench top, right? With beakers and plungers and whatever, whatever they could do to get it done in, in hospitals. But then that's very different from, you know, boxes that can be at your local hospital or your doctor's office, which is very different from those things we got in the mail, you know, the orange boxes with the little thing on a cartridge. I mean, amazing that you could do that. It really is and phenomenal in the short time frame. Oh, that, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, we've seen it develop, too. I think sometimes we, we forget that, but it was truly remarkable and saved a lot of lives um, as a result. I'm curious, are you seeing any new trends that you're um, in the research and development space of new treatments for infection? Mm -hmm. Anything that's really kind of more cutting edge or um, we've heard other speakers have talked about phage therapy, for example, mm -hmm. that really is kind of a throwback I learned uh, with our last um, podcast. But I'm curious, are there other trends that you're seeing? Yeah, so I would say three main areas. And again, just staying with the theme of sepsis, recognizing that we fun, you know, research for many other syndromes too, but let's just stay there. Um, you know, remaining in diagnostics for a minute, the next level of, I think, really cool stuff um, is to use, you know, everybody's talking about AI, AI, um, you know, back when I was a computational scientist, we just called it computational science, but now it sounds cooler to call it AI. Anyway, um, that's really using big data to make predictions about whatever. Um, and one of, well, it's actually two of our diagnostics companies, both focused on um, direct from whole blood, um, you know, predictions of bloodstream infections um, are looking at, you know, predicting what, um, again, not only the species, but the resistance is 
um, you know, again, based on big data. Um, and that's the big data or genome sequences, um, you know, that they will collate over time and make these predictions. Um, so it's really cool, I have to say, you know, they're both early, but they're certainly their bacterial identification is outstanding. Um, and then, you know, they're really making great grounds and prediction of resistance markers. So that's a neat space, I think, to watch. I think it will fundamentally change, you know, how diagnostics are used and then how treatment is affected in, you know, hospitals and centers. Um, so I think that's a big thing. And the other area is treatment. Treatment's been tough, um, you know, for once you've got sepsis, just because, again, you know, it, it becomes often more about the host and, you know, the inflammatory response than it does the infection, you know, at some point. Um, but there's a really neat company um, in, in California called Celix. Um, and I was literally just talking to them this morning, so they're fresh on my mind. Anyway, they have um, this really cool um, nano sponge, okay? So it's, it, it is a therapeutic, but it's not like a small molecule, you know, uh, inhibitor of something. Uh, and it actually has three different ways it works, but the, the sum total of it is it basically, it's called a sponge because it attracts bacterial toxins, um, you know, and then also both pathogen and host uh, inflammatory factors. And so it's basically sits there and tries to sort of, you know, sop up all the bad stuff and do that quickly and effectively. Um, so again, they're early, but that is really neat. Um, and, you know, if that works, I, I think it would be a, you know, terrific addition to the armamentarium. Then you go to prevention. Um, and, and so there's a more, I would say, traditional prevention, which is still terrific. Um, you know, the Glaxo Ventures for Global Health has a invasive non-typhoidal uh, non salmonellosis, it's a lot of words, um, vaccine um, that uh, among the things that invasive non-typhoidal salmonellosis causes is sepsis. And this is particularly a challenge in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, this group is poised to commence clinical trials with this investigational vaccine. So we're pretty excited about that. And then to your, to your point, um, we have other products that are focused on decolonization of the gut um, of bad bacteria that, you know, in patients, for instance, that have certain hematological cancers um, or awaiting transplantation, um, you know, or other diseases where they might have a, a leaky gut, um, you know, are very much, um, you know, at risk for, you know, bloodstream infections and sepsis. And so there are two approaches there, um, both in our portfolio. Uh, one does use uh, bacteriophage, and these are engineered, CRISPR engineered. So CRISPR, of course, you know, the subject of the Nobel Prize in chemistry a couple of years ago. Um, and so, you know, what, what these bacteria uh, phage do is they go in and they basically like, like, haul out the bad guys, just cut them out of the gut. So um, if you think about it in the analogy of a neighborhood, it's like you get rid of the bad actors in the neighborhood. Um, now you have to ask the question, who moves in? Um, but, you know, it, it's an interesting idea to remove the bad bacteria and hopefully what you establish is a healthier gut. And then, you know, you forestall um, breakthrough bacteremias. On the other side of the coin are live uh, biotherapeutic products um, and, you know, there are companies like Vedanta, Boston-based company, Ceres, also a Boston-based company. We've supported both of them. 
uh, who rather than looking to cut out the bad bacteria are trying to sort of, you know, knock them out by putting consortia of good bacteria in. Um, so they're, you know, basically replacing bad stuff with good stuff. And again, hoping to uh, restore gut health so that you don't have these breakthroughs. Um, so a lot of neat innovation and, and innovation that's maturing. Series is in a first in human study with their product and we hope Vedanta will be here um, you know, in the short term too. Um, there's a company, a Danish company in our portfolio using this CRISPR engineered bacteriophage approach um, for removing E. coli. And, and this is important for patients with certain cancers. Um, and they're also in a first in human study looking at safety principally. So a lot of stuff moving closer to patients, all really neat. And that's so encouraging and exciting. And the approaches are so, so different. Um, that's, that's, that's very encouraging. Um, one thing I wanted to talk about too, is like the policy. We understand um, that Congress has, is considering legislation that addresses some of those issues that you were talking about. You're successful on the R&D side, but then the market just isn't there to help these companies maintain stability and um, be financially viable. Um, and we understand that the Pasteur Act, which is under consideration in Congress, includes incentives for developing some of those new treatments and diagnostics that you were talking about to fight resistant infections. Do you um, have an opinion based on your experiences of the importance of policies like that? Oh, yeah, I think they're huge. You know, we so so I, people talk about um you know, the, the different strategies to make this a viable therapeutic area and market again in two terms. So there's the push incentives and that's funding. So that's grant funding, like what we do. And then advanced development partners like BARDA, I mentioned, like the AMR Action Fund um, that was created by some foundations and most of the big pharma. It's a more of a venture fund, but will fund downstream from us. Um, you know, and others, Guard P, et cetera. So these are people giving money to advance these products, you know, to approval and to patients. Um, but then there's what they call the pool incentives. Um, and honestly, it's like a seesaw. If you if you don't have both, um, you know, it's it's actually, you know, so we can pile all the money we want into these innovative products. But if there's no market at the end, um, you know, it's just going to be a disaster. So you know, we need them. Um, and, and certainly there are two, um, two different pieces of legislation. Uh, the past year is um, one that, you know, we're, we're very excited about. It follows, um, I would say, uh, you know, really leadership at the, in the UK um, who built a small version of this um, and launched it, I think it was last year. Um, and, you know, this is kind of like a Netflix model, I guess. So the idea is that if you come with a new product, a therapeutic or preventative or, um, you know, diagnostic that that meets, um, you know, really does meet a high and met need um, that then, you know, the the product will basically be bought. Um, so the company then doesn't build a sales force and do all that. Um, they'll be given a certain amount of money upon approval. Well, it won't all come at once, you know, it'll be tiered over time, but it'll be, um, you know, enough of an incentive that the company can 
sort of recoup what they invested and hopefully also be encouraged to continue to do this. We think we need these innovations. It also will continue to encourage product developers to focus on the areas where the highest need is. Um, so we think that's great. You know, there is another piece of legislation that was called this arm, and, and I forget what it's evolved to now, um, but this is a little different um, where it's looking specifically at hospital-based products and taking them out of the DRG. You know, and the DRG is basically, I forget what the, the letters stand for, but, um, you know, basically it's the, the whole treatment plan. If you come to the hospital and you present with X, it's the bed, the nurse, the IV bags, the antibiotic if you need it and whatever, whatever else. Um, and that all comes with a price tag. So obviously, if your antibiotic is part of that, there's only so much you, you can charge for it, right? And so um, what this legislation would do would be to take the antibiotic out of the DRG and allow it to be priced um, you know, for what its value is. I did want to ask, um, and we typically do this in the podcast as we would close it out, is want to give you a chance if there are one or two things that people listening to the podcast would walk away with that you hope sticks with them and encourages them to, to take action either for themselves or, or, you know, for all of us more broadly on these issues, what, what would you suggest that, that they walk away with? Well, I, I think number one is we really need this to get done and, you know, we just can't wait and wait and wait. So your, your voice, you know, is, is very helpful there. Um, but then the other thing to think about, you know, that I just don't think we think about, I, I, I think of antibiotics like running water in a house in, you know, in, in a first world country, right? So when you buy a house or you rent an apartment, do you ever ask, is there running water? Is it something you even think about? The answer to that is no. Um, and so when you go or, you know, to have a child or, you know, everybody of a certain age, and I'm certainly there at this point, you know, is going to be thinking about a knee replacement or a hip replacement or a shoulder replacement, um, or maybe you're on dialysis or, you know, any of these, anytime you go into the hospital, you're having, you know, cardiac arterial bypass surgery, none of this, none of this. So all these medical innovations, and oh, by the way, for all those fancy immuno-oncology drugs that we hope are going to be great for cancer patients some days, none of these is effective if you don't have a stable store of effective antibiotics and other products. Think about that the next time, you know, when you're going to have your teeth cleaned and they ask you to take an antibiotic the day before, think about why they do that. Um, you know, this is all about um, you know, livelihoods that we've come to take for granted without these products. You know, great parting thoughts. And Dr. Aaron Duffy, thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for joining us today on Infectious Conversations. Well, thank you. It's been really a pleasure. And for those who are listening who would like additional information about the Pasteur Act or about antimicrobial resistance more generally, we invite you to visit our website, at fightinfectiousdisease.org. There's a lot more information about the challenges that we face, uh, links to information about CARVEX and other task force partners who are engaged in this effort. And we encourage you to get involved as well. Thank you for listening. <laughs>